Well, you've likely heard the phrase used a lot in the past year, adjusting to a new normal. Think about, again, last year we were adjusting to a new normal of worshiping outside as a church. We know church is not a building, but it most certainly is an assembly. And we assembled, assembled outside on the back lawn. That was our normal for 22 Sundays. Even now, adjusting to a new normal with the differences in, in the worship services we have now. Many of you were adjusting this past year to a new normal at school, uh, at, at work. You may not have heard of Zoom in the beginning of 2019, but in 2020 it became a way of life for you. And even with that, some of you still haven't figured out how to use the mute button when others are talking. Right? We, we know things have changed. There's a new normal in how we think about life and, and how things work. Well, this week in our study in Genesis, we see Noah and his family entering a new normal as God safely delivered them out of the ark and into a new world. God saved Noah and his family from God's wrath and judgment against sin while the rest of creation was destroyed by the flood. God preserved those on the ark and safely delivered them to new life. And Noah and his family adjusting to a new normal, a new world. That's what Genesis 9 is about, God preparing them to live in this new world. Go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 9. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17 this morning. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon is just to open up a copy of God's Word, the Bible. Take that pew Bible in front of you if you need it. Uh, you can turn this morning to page 6 on the pew Bible, page 6. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word that you might know God more. Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. Let me read through all of this passage as we begin our time together. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it 
and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. For our last time in the book of Genesis, we were in the story of the flood, and we saw decreation as, as God judged all of creation. We saw recreation at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8 as God safely delivered Noah and his family to new life. So after spending about a year on the ark, Noah got off of the ark. And what was the very first thing he did when he set foot on dry ground? He built an altar and he worshipped God. He offered a sacrifice, and we're told at the end of chapter 8 that God was pleased by the aroma of that sacrifice, that God was pleased with Noah. And God's pleasure there at the end of chapter 8, it's the foundation for everything we read in chapter 9. God was pleased, and therefore he moved forward to bless Noah. He was pleased, and he moved forward to establish a covenant with Noah. You know, I read a book in college and it said this, if you want to find pleasure in life, consider what brings God pleasure and then give yourself to that. It's just the logic for us as God's creatures. We are to be concerned with his pleasure. It's our aim, it's our goal as Christians to please him. And what we see in chapter 8, God is pleased, and in chapter 9, he moves forward in blessing and establishing a covenant. So as we move through this passage this morning, I want you to see two displays of God's pleasure. That's our outline if you're taking notes this morning. Two displays of God's pleasure. And the first display we find in verses 1 through 7, God takes pleasure in blessing his people. God takes pleasure in blessing his people. It's in verses 1 through 7. So we see Noah as a new kind of man, Living on a new kind of earth, the corruption and wickedness of the old earth washed away by God's judgment in the flood. And in verse 1, God pronounced a blessing on Noah and his family, blessing them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God says that down again in in verse 7, which forms an inclusio to highlight God's blessing. Now, verse 1, it's a blessing and it's a command. It's an obligation for Noah's sons, for them to multiply and to fill the earth. And it's almost identical to what we read when we studied through Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, verse 28, when, when God blessed Adam and Eve there in the garden, he told Adam to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. It was the, the goal, the vision of God and creation to fill the earth with worshipers of God. And here in chapter 9, we see that what God told Adam, he now tells Noah. This blessing shows God's plan to repopulate the earth through Noah's three sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. So this marked a new beginning. That wasn't entirely new. It's different from chapter 1 because in in chapter 1, we see that was a, a world that was made perfect. Everything there was good, good, and very good that God created. Even with the flood washing away wickedness and God's judgment, we see the curse of sin was still there in chapter 9. So it's new, but a new kind of earth, not entirely new, and not certainly the way we'll see things as they unfold from Revelation chapter 21 with a new heaven and a new earth. So we see a new beginning, and in this section we see three different blessings from chapter 1 that are once again given to Noah and all of humanity. So lots of similarities from chapter 9 to chapter 1, and these three blessings we see 
the blessing of dominion, the blessing of provision, and the blessing of dignity. Those are going to be three sub-points this morning. If you want to follow along in the notes, let's look first at the blessing of dominion. That's in, in verse 2. God's still blessing humanity with dominion over creation. We see that human beings, the crown jewel in creation, so the same blessing from chapter 1, yet things are different in a fallen world that's tainted by sin. And so the blessings and the commands in chapter 9, they are restated in a way that accounts for sin. We see here this is a new world, but not a brand new world like it was in Genesis 1. So there are differences. And one of those differences was that in Genesis 1, 28, the blessing to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it continued on and it said, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and sea and over everything else on the earth. Or those words aren't here in chapter 9. In their place, you see in verse 2, that the fear of you and the dread of you will be on the animals. So Adam and Eve, they enjoyed a, a peaceful relationship with animal life there in the garden in Eden. But animals now, they're, they're food for people. You're probably going to go eat animals for lunch. And that doesn't sound like appetizing to think about, but that's what you're going to eat, Right? And so therefore, animals have a fear that we are after them. We are out to, get, we are out to eat them. They will have a fear and a dread of humanity. We, we see that truth evident in creation. It's kind of this, this new normal of fear and dread, a lack of fellowship there. The hostility exists in a sinful world, even between the human race and animal life. We also see a second blessing there, the blessing of provision. It's in verse 3. We see God providing food for them and a blessing there. And in verse 3, we also see a difference from what we read in chapter 1. We see a difference in how God blesses and commands Noah and his sons from how he blessed and commanded Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, 29, God gave Adam and Eve uh, fruits of the tree to eat there in the garden in Eden. They could eat of every tree in the garden, all the plant life except for one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Here in, in verse 3 of chapter 9, God gave Noah and his family animals to eat. He provided for them to eat of, of every living thing. And when you read this, you may wonder, well, was everyone a vegetarian up until this point? Well, I don't think so. I think people have been eating animals for a long time. If you think back to chapter 4, uh, we see that Abel was a keeper of sheep. We see that sheep were likely being offered up for sacrifice there. Even the fat portions that were offered there, uh, we, we understand those sacrifices. That's probably telling us they were eating animals at that time as well. So I simply understand this to be a restating of this and a God reissuing this permission to eat of all that he has created. Now, while people were permitted to eat meat, we see in verse 4, they were prohibited from eating meat with blood. Verse 4 says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That was a prohibition here, just like there was a prohibition in the garden. In the garden, enjoy every single tree, but don't eat this one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat fruit from that. Here, here in chapter 9, we'll eat every living thing, but don't consume its, its blood. Right. So, so, so again here, does this mean that you should not eat a medium rare steak? Well, I hope not. I love medium rare steaks. I had one this past week, right? And I don't think this is prohibiting that. You might have one for lunch. Again, I'm getting you hungry probably, and I'm mentioning that so often. I think this is just referring to consuming blood. Well, that sounds like an odd thing, that why would you want to consume blood, and why is this prohibited? Well, think about the significance of blood and sacrifice throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, the rest of the first five books of the Old Testament. The blood of animals was to be used as a sacrifice to make an atonement for sin. 
We see later that Moses writes in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. No blood, no forgiveness, right? We understand the blood of Jesus Christ brings forgiveness to all who would turn and trust in him. There's significance to the blood. There's a, a prohibition there on consuming blood to show respect for the blood of sacrifice, to prepare people, to understand the important use of blood and sacrifice and making atonement for sin, the important use of blood to reconcile sinful people to a holy God who created us. That's what that is about. And finally, building on the prohibition of verse 4 is what we see in verses 5 and 6. The image of God still affirmed in humanity. So, so Moses goes from the blood of animals to the blood of people. Verse 5 shows that God will punish anyone. Indeed, he gives the responsibility here for those who shed blood of human beings to be punished. We're getting into a lot of stuff here on Mother's Day, aren't we? Goodness, death penalty, all, all sorts of different things. Let's, let's consider what this has to say here. Uh, verse 5, it, it shows us this blessing of, of dignity. So, so we see dignity here, that all of life was created by God and for his glory. Human life of supreme importance to God in all of creation. Human life created in, in God's likeness and his image. We see here, even after the flood, the image of God still affirmed in fallen human beings. The image of God still living on. And verses 5 and 6 show how great of an offense it is to take human life. How serious of an offense it is to shed the blood of human beings. These verses speak to homicide. The intentional taking of human life. Verse 5 shows that God will punish anyone who sheds human blood. He will require a, a reckoning. And the penalty for murder is, is death. So we see here if an animal kills a person, it will be put to death. We do that here in our society still. If a person deliberately kills a person, they will be put to death. Now what's instituted here is a proportionate justice. The punishment must fit the crime. That's a good thing. This is about upholding justice. It's about upholding dignity of human beings made in the image of God. It's showing that after the, the flood and God's judgment, his right judgment, his righteous judgment on sin, it's showing that life is precious to God. All human life bears his image and therefore must be treated with dignity, honor, and respect. Verse 6 shows the punishment must fit the crime. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And we find here the category for the death penalty or capital punishment. Now, another important difference from chapter one, we didn't see this in chapter one. There was no murder in chapter one. It didn't take long for murder to come into the world. One generation, Cain murdering his brother Abel out of jealousy and envy in his heart. So there was no direction given in chapter one that you'd have to take the life of a murderer. But here in chapter 9, this was a new beginning, a new kind of world, but we would see that this anticipates even the spread of sin and wickedness once again. We see that the world is not the way that it was in the garden. It's not the way that it should be. It anticipates image bearers of God murdering and deliberately taking the lives of other 
image bearers of God, and justice would be needed. Well, why such a harsh penalty? If you're wondering that. Well, why, why such a harsh penalty? That sounds awful. Well, look at the end of verse 6. For God made man in his own image. Life is precious to God. The message here, people should multiply life, not take it. Not murder other human beings. To deliberately take human life made in the image of God is a heinous attack on God himself. We don't believe in moral equivalence when it comes to the Bible. So we understand all sin condemns us before God. Whether a white lie or a murder, we all stand condemned as sinners in need of forgiveness. Well, that doesn't mean that there's no degree of seriousness from sin to sin. We see here this standing out. We see capital punishment being directed towards this one particular sin because of how heinous it is to deliberately take the life of someone made in the image of God. And the Bible here, because of this special status of people being image bearers of God, this passage institutes capital punishment for intentional murder. Now, I, I understand, Christians, we may have concerns about how the death penalty might be used justly in our society. And I think there are good conversations that we can have about that. I don't intend to address all of those in this sermon for time's sake. Happy to talk more with you about that, though. But even with those concerns, let's be clear. The concern there would be with just application, not with the penalty itself. The problem would be, would be with inequity, injustice, not with the penalty itself. So any concern that there might be with the administration of justice through the death penalty in our society would actually be seeking to uphold what is good and right in the Bible, to say we want justice. We want God's justice to be applied. We want people to be treated with fairness. So the concern here would be how to address any potential area of injustice, not a concern with the penalty itself. The punishment is not in question as it's clearly instituted here in Genesis chapter 9. God told Noah the penalty for intentional murder should be death and therefore showing how valuable human life truly is. Now this law does not allow for personal vengeance the administration of this penalty is spelled out later in the Pentateuch. The Old Testament law required uh, witnesses. It would be carried out justly by established authorities with precautions taken to protect anyone from being punished unjustly. Later in the New Testament, Romans 13, which we just heard read, we see the responsibility of the governing authorities. Again, under God's good design, the governing authorities to uphold what is good and to punish the wicked. And we see here in Genesis 9 a foundation that is built upon in the Old Testament and in the New. Again, all of this shows that life is precious to God. Human life must be treated and protected in a way that shows care. All human life, born human life, unborn human life, human life in the womb must be protected. It's all created by God. It belongs to Him, bears His image. It's precious to Him, and it must be precious to us. Life is a gift from God. It's his creation. We understand from these passages this morning, you can think about your own life that God has given you. And even as you thank your moms today, you can think about God's blessing. You being born, that your life is not an accident. Your life was not a mistake. God created you. That this blessing of bearing his image given to every single person ever born. 
that this blessing from Noah and his family was also for all of humanity. It was a blessing of common grace for all people, that all people are blessed with dignity from God, made in his image, given dominion and a responsibility, and God himself providing for life. And yet, even with that, it's not enough to live off of this general blessing, this common grace of being made in the image of God. You must receive God's saving grace if you are fully to live out of his purpose and his design for you. You must be saved from your sin against God. In fact, the only way to live in light of God's design for you in creation is to be made a new creation in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul picks up on that theme in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the, the new has come. And what he's saying is the same thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You, you were born physically. God brought you into this world. You, you're alive, but you need to be made alive in Christ. You need to be made new. You need to be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to the Creator God, the one that you and I have sinned against. You need to be made new in Jesus Christ. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, transforms you into a new creation, a new kind of person filled with the Holy Spirit of God, walking in obedience to God and His commands, living in relationship with Him, transferred from the dominion of darkness into His glorious light. If you're a Christian here this morning, you can find joy. Regardless of the season of your life that you're living in, you can find joy that you have been made new by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can find joy that He has transformed you to walk and to live in His blessing. Well, just as the waters of the flood washed away wickedness on the face of the earth, so we too must be washed spiritually, cleansed of our wickedness and sin against God. And the only way for that to happen is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and seek out forgiveness of your sins against God today. Well, God gives new beginnings and he takes pleasure in blessing his people. We also see in verses 8 through 17 a, a second display of God's pleasure. God takes pleasure in showing his faithfulness to his promise. God takes pleasure in showing his faithfulness to his promise. Well, God blessed Noah and his family, called them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and, and with that blessing also came God's promises. So the focus in verses 8 through 17, it shifts to, to focus on this covenant made by God with Noah. If you remember back before the flood in chapter 6, there was an announcement of this covenant. In chapter 6, the first time in the Bible that the word covenant is used. That was in chapter 6, verse 18. That was announced. And here in chapter 9, we see this covenant being established. Look in verses 8 and 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. Now the word covenant appears in verses 8 through 17 seven times. So it's important for us to understand what a covenant is. And this is actually the starting point in Scripture for us to understand this word. So, so what is a covenant? 
Well, most simply put, a covenant is a contract or an agreement between two parties. Uh, One theologian I love to read, Tom Schreiner, defines it like this. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. So we know about covenant in in our lives, in our society. Marriage is a type of of covenant. Uh, Pastor Tim prayed for us in our church covenant and keeping the commitments. When you join this church, you sign a church covenant. It's it's an agreement between you and this congregation of how you're going to live and relate to them and how they agree to relate to you. Now, when we consider the, the biblical covenants, when we see these covenants in the Bible, what they do is they trace God's saving work throughout history. So the Bible has a framework of biblical covenants that progress the story of God's redemption throughout history, from the book of Genesis to Revelation. These biblical covenants, like what we see here in Genesis chapter 9 with Noah, they trace the history of God's grace in redemption and in salvation. Now you may be more familiar with the concept of covenant than you realize. Your Bible is divided into two sections, the Old and New what? Testament. Right? We call them the Old and New Testament. That, that word testament comes from a, a Latin word, uh, testamentum. Now, testamentum in Latin, it just means covenant. So a more accurate translation for what we divide those two sections in your Bible would just be called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Like me saying, turn to uh, Genesis in the, book of the, in, in the section of the Old Covenant in your Bible. Right? Or we look to the New Covenant. We see what God's done in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So we understand covenants shape how the Bible is put together, and they trace God's saving work throughout history. Now what we see in the Bible is that God relates to people through covenants. It's how he chooses to relate to his, his creatures. So we see this framework of covenants throughout the Bible. Again, we, we see a covenant with, with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and then we see that the new covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. So we see this, this covenant here even associated uh, with Adam. So while it's first explicitly mentioned with Noah, I understand that God creating Adam as the first man in the garden, he also established a covenant with him as well. You can jot this reference down if you want to look at it later. Uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. We, we see there the word covenant associated with Adam. It says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now God's promise to Adam was conditioned. There was a condition there. It was conditioned upon obedience. It was a covenant of of, of works, so to speak, that required Adam to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now just as God established a covenant with Adam, here he establishes one with Noah. These biblical covenants, they'll take on different shapes or forms. So we'll see some differences here in the covenant with, with Noah. Something that we see that's the same here is that that God is the one who established it. God initiated this covenant, and it's a covenant to preserve life. Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So, So covenants are initiated by God. God chooses to make a covenant. He chooses to enter into relationship and his covenant promise to Noah is that he will not destroy the world again with a flood. This promise shows God's grace to protect and to preserve human life. He will never again judge the world by a flood. Now notice the promise is not that God will never judge sin again. That's not the promise being made here. 
The promise doesn't tell us that God no longer is angry about sin or wickedness in the world. The covenant promise is that God will not judge the world by destroying it with a flood. Now, the apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, he picks up on this theme and actually tells us that the next judgment, the final judgment ushered in at the return of Jesus Christ, it will be by fire. So God indeed will judge sin. He is right to judge sin. Just as he was waiting patiently in the days of Noah, just as sure as he sent his judgment against sin with the flood, God will one day at the return of Jesus Christ judge sin once and for all. And it won't be by flood this time. It will be much worse. It will be by fire an eternal conscious torment to those who've not trusted in Jesus Christ. Friends, for the final judgment for Christians, again, it brings us comfort. That finally, wickedness will be done away with in the earth. Finally, we will be gathered together, assembled around the throne of our God and King. But if you don't know Jesus, this should not bring you comfort. You should fear this day. Just like in the days of Noah, judgment was being proclaimed by by Noah. Judgment is being proclaimed by the church of Jesus Christ. Today, again, I know this message is not popular. I know this message might get you labeled extreme or like some religious nut out in society. I know you might be labeling me right now as a fire and brimstone preacher. I preach what's in the text, folks. It's here today, and it helps us understand what is true about God. And what you need to know if you're not a Christian, God is going to judge you. We are not loving you, and we are doing you no favors if we don't tell you that. I know you might be here with your mom today who's a believer, but if you want to be with mom in eternity, you need to turn and place your trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only way to be forgiven. This judgment is real. It is sure. And the good news is that God provides a way of escape, a way back to him. This whole story is about second chances. This whole story is about a new beginning. It points to the new beginning God ultimately gives through his son, Jesus Christ. So this covenant promise we see to Noah, it's until the final day of judgment at the end of age, God, at the end of the age, God promises to preserve the world and to never destroy it again by the flood. Now again, God's way of relating to his creatures is through covenant, and a, a covenant clarifies the terms of a relationship. So as I read through verses 12 through 17, I want you to listen for repetition here. A repetition of the phrase between me and. It's going to show you who this covenant's made with. Let's read verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Well, two aspects of this covenant that stand out. It's universal And it's unconditional. That's what this this shows us. This between me and language shows us this covenant is universal and it's unconditional. It's universal in that it's made with the world. Verse 12 makes it clear. This covenant between God and Noah and every living creature for all 
future generations. Again, all of creation included in this promise. It's a covenant that speaks of God's common grace to preserve life. Furthermore, this covenant is is unconditional, meaning there are no human conditions given here. Adam had a condition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see some commands that are given here earlier uh, to Noah. Again, establishing justice, upholding what is right there on the earth. But, but generally speaking, looking at this, there are no human conditions given here. This is an unconditional covenant, which helps us understand God's grace written all over this. God promises on his own accord to preserve the earth. There is no indication given here in this promise that people can break this covenant and end up with another flood. God just says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my promise. Here's a sign of this promise of what he's going to do. So again, covenant promises are accompanied by signs. The covenant with Abraham accompanied by the sign of circumcision. The covenant of Moses on Mount Sinai came with the sign of the Sabbath. The the new covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ We have the sign of baptism and what we'll take this morning after the service, the Lord's Supper. Here in God's covenant with Noah, the sign of his promise, good chance you're familiar with this, the rainbow. God's sign sealing his covenant. Now, we don't find the word rainbow here. We see in verse 14, it's referred to as a a bow in the clouds. But this, this bow or rainbow is a public sign of the covenant that God made with Noah. It's a sign of God's grace. And while rainbows are signs that you and I can still see today after it storms and rains, notice this passage points not so much to you and I being able to see the sign, but God seeing the sign. Look again at verse 14. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Track the progression here in Genesis of what God sees. Chapter 1, all that God saw was good and good and very good. Chapter 6, all God saw was corruption and wickedness on the earth, except for one righteous one there in Noah. In chapter 9, what God sees, a rainbow, his promise, his faithfulness. He is pleased to show his faithfulness to the world, pleased to demonstrate his grace and his kindness to all of creation. And when God sees the sign of this promise found in the rainbow, he remembers. As we've seen before in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, this isn't suggesting that God needs reminders. He knows everything. He never forgets. Rather, this is language that communicates that God draws near. When he remembers, he draws near. When he remembers, he moves and he acts in faithfulness towards his people. He's saying, when I see the rainbow, I will move and act in faithfulness. This rainbow, again, it forms a sign of God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to his promise, a sign of God's promise of grace to humanity. Well, all of this taken together shows us that through this covenant, God is gracious to preserve life on earth. Again, if you piece that together, that's why we read instruction earlier on how to deal with murders. Because this whole section is about God's grace to preserve life, 
to protect life, to display his image through his creation of people. And the point of God preserving life on earth is for him to display his redemption. He's not preserving life just so you and I can make a lot of good memories. That's just common grace that we can make good memories. It's common grace that uh, we can enjoy all sorts of good things in life and education and family and good meals and to, to live in a, a city with so many fun things. It's all God's common grace and his ways where he just generally blesses us. But that is not the point of God preserving life. There is a life after this one. And the point of preservation is God preserving things to redeem. The point of preservation is God is being patient with you and I, giving us time to repent and believe in him. The point of him preserving from Noah on was for the story of the Bible to unfold through a framework of covenants leading up to the new covenant when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, appeared. To lay his life down and die on the cross as a sacrifice, to pay the penalty for sin once and for all, to all who would believe and trust in him. You see, the, the, creator, the created order is preserved through Noah. And that set the stage for God's redemption in sending Jesus. One commentator, he put it like this, God's covenant turned judgment into grace. That's what happened there with Noah and the rainbow. God's covenant turned judgment into grace. Rainbows remind us of the peace that God brought through his judgment and his wrath. Yet again, rainbows are not the ultimate sign of God's grace, that's not the end-all, be-all. We need more than life being preserved. We need our lives redeemed. And this covenant with Noah pointed to a new covenant that would come through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying on the cross. Through his sacrificial death, the wrath of God was satisfied. The judgment for sin fully placed on Jesus His death on the cross for sin, his resurrection from the dead, satisfied God's righteous requirements. You see, we understand that that Christ defeating sin and death, getting up from the dead, we understand that the resurrection there, which we celebrate every Sunday morning, that Christ defeated every sin when he got up from the dead. We understand that that through Jesus' resurrection, we understand that in his glorious resurrection, he is the promised serpent crusher of chapter 3, verse 15, the one who'd finally defeat sin and Satan and death. He is the rest that Lamech, Noah's father, longed for, which we saw in chapter 5. He longed for, he hoped it would come through his son Noah, but it would come through a, a much more distant relative, through Jesus Christ. Noah, he offered a sacrifice there on dry land that brought God pleasure, and in God's pleasure, he moved to bless his people and establish a covenant with him. But Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, a sacrifice that fully and finally pleased a holy God, a sacrifice that God felt found so acceptable to fully pay for every sin, that God raised him from the dead as the sign. This is the one in whom there is salvation. This is the one in whom you must believe. There is no other name under heaven given amongst when whereby we must be saved. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. You see, God saw the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and he still sees it today. His blood applied to all of those who would turn and trust in Jesus. The only way for you to be accepted before a holy God is to have his blood applied to your life. You don't get into heaven because you've got an impressive spiritual resume. You don't get into heaven because your church attendance was more remarkable than the person sitting in the pew two rows behind you. 
You don't get into heaven because you tried really hard and you did what you could with what you learned. It's not true that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Forgiven people go to heaven. And the only way to be forgiven is to turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ. You see, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God was moved to bless and to forgive sin and to enter into an eternal covenant, one that you can never lose, a relationship that will last in this life and the next. Why are we studying the book of Genesis? It points to Jesus. The story of the flood points to God's coming wrath and judgment. The ark of salvation there with Noah points to Jesus Christ, the full and final ark of our salvation. In Christ, there is redemption for all who believe in Him. There is peace with God. God is faithful. He makes promises, and He keeps them. And the rainbow was there as a sign of God's promise to preserve life. But again, you need more than to have your life preserved. You need to be redeemed. And if you come this morning and you, talk, you want to talk more with one of us about what it would look like to trust in Jesus, we'll be at the top of the ramp afterwards. Talk to someone who brought you this morning. Talk to one of our members around you. You need more than the promise of the rainbow. You need the promise of having your sins forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And for those who are in Christ this morning, just as we look to the rainbow and have assurance of God's faithfulness to His promise to never flood the world again, Christian, we look to Christ. We remember God's faithfulness. We remember God's faithfulness to His promise that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we find assurance that our sins have been forgiven, that we fully belong to Him. And that's what we remember in this supper as we close out our service today, the, remembering the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and remembering and looking forward to the return of Jesus on that final day. Our hope is in Christ for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Let's pray.